0: What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE.
1: This is the Fly the W670 podcast. It's episode 100 of season two, the Cubs Ironman. Don't forget to listen, download, subscribe to the Fly the W podcast. And don't forget to leave those five-star reviews in this segment. Crawley has already started that winter reading. And as you may have already guessed, they are books about the Cubs. That's right. Crowley and the Cubs, peanut butter and jelly. Author John St. Augustine joins Crowley to talk about his book, Iron Man. John worked with Randy Huntley to tell his story of the legendary Cubs catcher's life. Joining me on the fly, the W podcast, I'm happy to have on John St. Augustine. He is the author of the book, Iron Man, that he worked on with Randy Huntley, legendary Cubs catcher. How are you doing today, John?
0: Paul, great to be with you. So excited to do this. Talk about this fantastic book and the uh, the opportunity to uh, to shed a little light on the Iron Man of baseball, Randy Hundley.
1: Now, when we talk about Randy, you know, what was it do you think that made him finally decide to want to kind of tell his story?
0: I think because when he turned 80 years old, he realized he's running out of time. You know, uh, he and I talked about this over the last 10 years. We've been friends a very, very long time. I did not think I would be the guy to do it. I mean, I've written a lot of books for a lot of people and my own stuff and things like that. But uh, we went back and forth, and I thought, you know, he's got a story to tell. Like everybody does, the, the route to Major League Baseball for him was uh, not certain, but it became one that was very, very uh, powerful. And and obviously, as Cub fans, we all know that. Uh, so when he just after he turned 80 years old, he called and asked, we go to breakfast. I said, sure. So we're at breakfast. He's kind of fidgeting, which means he probably doesn't want to pay the check. He wants me <laughs> to pay the check. But in all seriousness, uh, he says, I think it's time to write the book. I said, great good luck with it. He goes, no, I want you to write it. Okay. Wow. And then I said, Randy, there's 20, 30, 40, 50 guys in this town that are pure sports writers that would really be able to do something with this. He said, I trust you. What am I going to say? No. So uh, a lot of work went into it. And uh, I make the, the comment in the back of the book in the afterward, there's a great book called Wednesdays with uh, Tuesdays with Maury. And this became Wednesdays with Randy for over six months, eight months, somewhere there. Every Wednesday, we'd go to breakfast uh, and he would be mobbed by Cub fans. It's amazing to me, Paul, that people were remembering stuff from 67, 68, 69, 70. And we're all talking about it in the parking lot before and after breakfast. So once we finished that, we would go to his house. And we would talk for two, three, four, five hours, whatever it took, about everything you can imagine about his life. And after six, eight months of that, then it was my turn to kind of burrow into my studio and and take all these parts of the puzzle and put it together in something which you now have there called Iron Man.
1: And, and when I read the book, the, the thing that really, the, to me, there's two people that really play an important role in Randy's life. Obviously the first one being his father. And it was, uh-huh. it was just so interesting the impact that uh, Randy's father had on his career. I mean, everything from coaching him to being his first agent to uh, PR guy, you yeah. know, and, 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 the one thing I think that you know maybe just doesn't even get credit is that his father was the one that taught him how to catch one-handed, which is basically normal now, but was not the norm back then.
0: Yeah, hundred percent right, Paul. So his dad, Cecil Randolph Hundley Sr., one tough sob. This guy weighed 155 pounds if if he's lucky, but he was built like you know pig iron. Uh, he played semi-pro baseball for over 20 years. He was a catcher. He broke every hand in his throwing, every bone in his throwing hand, I'm sorry, many times over, and he was a prodigious uh, home run hitter. There's there's a, I found a, a, an article with a headline that says, Hundley hits 560-foot home run. I mean, come on. So when it was time for young Randy to learn the game, of course, he turned to his dad, was was kind of his hero, and he went through all the different positions on the on the diamond, and His dad said, You could be a great pitcher, but you're going to ruin your arm. We we don't want that. So, after you've gone through all that, there's no one place left. That's behind the plate. And you're 100% right. Back then in the day, catching two handed with a mitt and holding the other hand right next to it was the norm. And that's where all those foul tips and things like that took those guys out, bent fingers, what have you. And he said, You're going to learn to catch one handed. I do not want to see that right hand up there. And if it come, I'm coming to get you if I see that hand up there. And Randy tells the story of his dad putting his finger in his forehead at like eight, nine years old and scaring the crap out of him. And that stayed with him his whole career. He said, we'd be playing in, in St. Louis. I'm, I'm up against you know Bob Gibson and Lou Brock and all these guys. And I'm hearing my dad in my head saying, don't put that hand up there, I'll come get you. So it was very profound. And you pointed out, if his dad had not done that, I'm sure somebody else would have come along, but it just happened to be Hundley. Uh, he was the first one-handed catcher in MLB history Uh, And after that, Johnny Bench followed. And once Johnny Bench followed, that
1: was it. Yeah. And, and, you know, one of the – you know, there's so many good stories uh, if you are a true baseball fan throughout the book. And I remember listening to – there's a famous story, um, you know, where uh, Ron Santo and Billy Williams were coming up. And Roger Hornsby basically told, you know, each guy whether they should go back home and get a different job or if they were going to be MLB players. And I found it really interesting, I didn't know this, that Randy got some good hitting advice when he was a young prospect from Hank Sauer. Yes. And maybe not a lot of Cub fans know this, but but Hank was, was a very popular player in Chicago in the early oh, yeah. 1950s, MVP in '52. And I always love th- when the old generation passes on advice to the new generation, like Hank Sauer passing his knowledge on to Randy Huntley.
0: You know, um, I'm reminded every time when Craig Council, who was the new manager, was playing, he had his bat way up in the air. Remember that? He'd be twirling yep. way up in the air. And Hundley did something yeah, similar to that. He would time pitches by twirls. And after about six or eight pitches, you know, he walks over and says, that's not going to cut it, kid. So Hank Sauer, if you read his stats, was Superman back in the day. I mean, it was incredible what he accomplished. He also wore number nine, by the way. And I'm not sure there was any connection when Yosh gave Randy number nine, he knew that it was really Hank, you know, it was kind of continuing the the legacy of Hank Sauer. Uh, And eventually Javi would wear it in 2016. But that few minutes in the batting cage, even though Hundley is not known for his power and for home runs, I mean, you know, and and, all that stuff that maybe bench would be known for some of these these catchers today, it shifted him into a, a position of being a very strong hitter back at a time when catchers weren't really known for this. Because they were just expected to catch and that's all they did. So they didn't really care what your batting average was. But Hundley, if you read his game summaries, which there's a lot of them in the book, you can see he was a very clutch hitter when it mattered. He had more home runs in his rookie year at that time than any catcher, uh, 19 of them. So, you know, he knew his way around the plate and uh, Hank Sauer had a lot to do with that.
1: Yeah, just you know, so cool. And, and and then, you know, when I when I think about Randy's debut, September 27th, 1964, yeah. it's at Wrigley Field of all yeah. places against the Cubs. And 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 if that's just not poetic bait justice, but but just thinking about his teammates that day. Matty Alou, Willie Mays, Orlando Cepeda, Willie McCovey, Duke Schneider. I mean, he had to have, I mean, that had to have been a intimidating, but man, can you just imagine how much knowledge and learning how to play their game the right way when those are the guys on the bench next to you?
0: Yeah, no doubt about it. One of the great pictures we came across that Randy had from his archive is that picture of him squatting at Wrigley. You can see right field clearly behind Randy, you know, doing that. And he was brought into that game to pinch run for Duke Snyder, of all people. He wasn't brought in to catch right away. And you're right. How uh, you know profound was it uh, that eventually he would come to the Chicago Cubs, not much longer after that, and make that his home for so long? But there's also a picture there, I believe it was the 1966 Topps rookie card, and Randy's smiling big time. He's just a kid, you know, and, and he can't believe he's, he's on the Topps rookie team card list and he said, Do You know why I'm smiling so much? Like, well, I guess because you made the tops team. He goes, No, McCovey, Cepeda, and Willie Mays are all making fun of me off behind the photographer. I think they were mooning him, but we cleaned it up for the book.
1: <laughs> and, and, you know, like you said, he came in to pinch run, but his very first start happens on June 28th, 1965. The first pitcher he ever has to face wow. is Don Drysdale. <laughs> I mean, come on. You know, uh, yeah. I was talking to my dad, who's a huge Huntley fan, and it's just yeah. like, oh, Drysdale was a headhunter. I mean, yeah. yeah, can you imagine that?
0: No, and and you know, there's so many versions. You know, I Randy would talk about his view of this, obviously, but he remembers having conversation with Drysdale later, and Sandy Koufax who was the second one, and later on down the line with Bob Gibson, these great, powerful pitchers that you know you got to go up against. And look, you know, I like the game today, but I got to go back to those days when these guys were you know, pitching complete games, they were men among men back then, not two innings here, four innings there. So these guys were bringing the heat all the time. And Drysdale, as you said, was a headhunter. His job was to make sure you didn't want to step back in the box again. So Hundley's first at bat, you know, he Roseboro, who's catching, says you better watch your butt because it's coming. And Randy's like, yeah, okay, whatever. And next thing you know, here's Drysdale yelling, watch out, because it's coming right for his head. And after a while, he just wore him flat out. And it was either him or the Koufax uh, story where he realized he's not going to hit anything. He should just pack a lunch and go home. It was pretty funny.
1: Now, Randy is going to come to the Cubs for a trade on December 2nd, 1965, along with Bill Hands. And it's interesting, the relationship those two men have. They're kind of interconnected throughout their uh, careers, uh, Randy and Bill Hands. But, uh, you know, he comes to the Cubs and they had hired legendary manager, Leo, the lip, Derosier, who, you know, I've, I've heard a lot of different Cubs from that 1960s team talk. And to me, it was interesting because I feel out of everybody, it, it seems like Randy had the closest relationship, if anyone really could with Leo, the lip. Um, and, and as far as the trust that Leo had in Randley, in Randy.
0: Yeah, that's a good observation, Paul, because, uh, you know, DeRocher called the trade of bringing Hundley over the greatest thing since Gabby Hartnett. I mean, no pressure, right? And no pressure <laughs> on this kid to come over and be the next Gabby Hartnett. And I think he understood, look, Leo DeRocher, for all his faults, was an incredible ball player and incredible manager. And you had to learn how to deal with his managerial style. These guys were not, there was no politically correct back then. Just put that out there right out of the gate. So when Randy was earning his wings, so to speak, with uh, with Leo, Leo just pushed on him mercilessly to see what he had. And I think you know there, we make the comparison of the book, some sports writers called Leo the, the baseball equivalent of Vince Lombardi. I mean, it's the same in your face, up your butt, let's get this done kind of deal. And I think Randy needed that. You know, he, he, At one point, we're having this long conversation about DeRocher, and I said to him, hey, did you ever make the comparison between Leo Rocher and your father? And he sat back in his chair at the house where we're drinking coffee. He said, Never thought of that before, but they are the same guy in so many different ways. So he needed that push. And I think that's what brought up the best in Hunley. And when the day came and Leo finally tipped his cap and said, You're the guy out there, you're the field general, the confidence that that brought up in him uh, never ended.
1: Now, obviously, that, you know, the Cubs' 60s team, they were all just a close knit group. Yeah. But. It seemed, you know that the connection between Randy and Fergie was just so important, and Fergie wrote the forward to, yeah. the, to the book Iron Man, and and Randy wrote the book uh, forward for uh, you know Fergie's book. It, it's right. just I was there when uh, Fergie got his statue at Wrigley Field at on you know on statue row, and yeah. the when I talked to Fergie, just the the high praise that he had towards Randy Huntley. It, it, the connection between those guys is just absolutely, I, I just wonder if it was immediate or if it was something that took a little time to build.
0: You know, what's so interesting. There's so many sort of back themes to this book, Paul. And one of them is that you got to recall the time these guys played in the 60s was turbulent to say the least. This is, you know, people think things are tough now. You take a look from 60 to 69, what we went through as a nation and the world. And so you got Vietnam, you got civil rights, uh, you got the Democratic National Convention, you got four people assassinated in five years, and the, the racism that was going on back then was rampant. So you have this black Canadian flamethrower, and you got this country boy from Virginia, and you're going to put them together in Chicago, which is a hot spot for, for all the things going on with civil rights. And in some ways, there was an immediacy because, you know, they both, they're pros, right? They're, they're rookies, but they're pros. The second thing was is, and Randy talked about this. He said, you know, it just, it just comes out to realize that color doesn't matter except whatever uniform you're wearing. Now, the players got that, but outside the park, that wasn't always the case. And so I think it didn't take very long for them to realize the importance of this relationship, you know, in that time. You got the white catcher from the country and the, the black pitcher from Canada, and you're putting them out there constantly, and their, their success is undeniable. I believe it was something like I don't I can't remember how many exact what Fergie wrote in the forward, but Randy caught more of his games than anybody else he threw to, including Jody Davis, including Jim Sunberg. You know, so those type of things mattered. And when I sat with Fergie this past August, we talked about the forward just before the book was printed. I was at the Hall of Fame game with Dunstan and Mark Grace, and we were all there together. And and he says, you know, it's about time this book got done. This guy is so humble, meaning Randy. I'm surprised he said anything about getting the book done. He's not a promoter. He doesn't call attention to himself. He just shows up and does his job. So we were so fortunate and uh, and humbled to have Fergie write a great forward to the book. It's fantastic.
1: Now, speaking of those 60s Cubs, obviously 1969 is the one that both I think revitalized the franchise, but at the same time, it was so so crushing for anybody that lived (laughs) through it. And it was the strange thing is that, you know, the amazing Mets are the ones that passed them and went on to the world series, et cetera. But, but it seems like all the weird games that were negative happened against the Mets, Uh, Don Young, missing two balls, which caused some controversy for Ron Santo there was the black cat game where some black cat came out of the, you know, who knows where and circled around Santo on the on deck circle. Yeah. But to me, the one that, that what Randy talks about is is a game that was tied at two and Tommy Agee looked like he was thrown out at the plate. Rookie umpire makes a call and, and, to me, I don't think Randy ever got over that. And I remember I, I was I, there, you know, I was in a documentary called "Wait Till Next Year," and, and Randy, they had footage of Randy after that call, and he literally is hopping mad.
0: If you want to piss off Randy Huntley, just ask, just say Tommy Agee and say Shea Stadium. That'll set him <laughs> right off. Even at his, his age of eighty-one now, you know, it's uh, I, that was the first chapter of the book I wrote because that's it lit his fuse. We had breakfast that morning. We went back, and thought, we're just talking. I got the tape rolling. Nothing. You know, it's all informal. No real pointed questions. And he says, "I'll tell you one thing. AG was blooming out at the plate of Chase. That's how this starts. The whole book started with that. So that's the first chapter that I wrote. And you know, I, if they would have had instant replay like we have now in reviews, he'd have been out by a mile. It, Hundley tagged him, and later, before AG passed away, he admitted he was tagged. You know, Todd Randy's son played in New York for 12, 13, 14 years, whatever it was." and before went to the Dodgers and back and forth with them. But he ran into AG and he said, well, tell your dad. I, I know I was out, but I'm not going to tell him that. So, but you're 100% right. There was this domino effect of these plays that seemed to culminate in this tag thing. And while he points out in the book, it probably wasn't the most important play of the year. It was definitely the most telling. It was kind of the, the core sampling of how this season was going to go. So close, yet so far. And the pictures in the book, man, I had more fun digging through thousands of pictures, literally to find the right pictures that go in there. So that hopping up and down thing that's in the book.
1: Just, yeah, just, it's something that always is kind of in my head when I, when I think about Randy and like I said, I didn't know he could jump that high. Uh, (laughs) I'm looking though, 1972, he's one of a few catchers in all history to catch two no hitters in one season You know, I don't know if people remember the Burt Hooten no-hitter. That was the first one. And then the second one is infamous in Cubs lore. That's Milt Pappas. Perfect game going with two outs in the ninth, a 3-2 pitch, and Bruce Framing called ball four on a borderline pitch. I don't know how Randy was able to settle Milt down. Milt was bitter about that until his dying day about that perfect game. But to think, two – No hitters and nearly a perfect game in one season. That is a rare accomplishment. There's only
0: five catchers that we could find uh, when I did my digging that have done that. I don't remember the other four guys, but Randy's one of them. And he talked about Bert Hoot. You know, Hoot never played minor league ball in his life. He's a phenom. He came out and he had this, you know, knuckle curveball thing that would drop off. Randy said it was as effective as Koufax's curveball. I mean, that's saying a lot. So he caught that game. And of course, the infamous Fremming incident. Uh, that, you know, just endeared Bruce Fleming to carpet Cup fans forever not. Uh, he talked about how difficult it was, and, and what what Fleming was saying, he's like, you know, if, if he comes up another step off that mound, he's out of here. You don't want that. And so Randy had to go settle him down and say, look, you got a no-no going here. I mean, a perfect game would be great, and but we got to take care of business. And that the first time, then he had to go out and settle him down again. And he said the hardest part, though, was after the game was done having milk <laughs> strangle bruce froming at some point you know but yeah it's very very cool
1: now you know that, that obviously teams can't stay together forever and, and that yeah. 69 team's gonna kind of break out but there's some some interesting characters that are going to come after and you know the one guy I, I was at club 400 uh you know our mutual friend Stuart McVicker, yeah. yeah. and uh this was a few years back and it was joe pepitone and and Randy wasn't even on the bill. He just kind of showed up because, Rand, you know, Randy yeah. loves Club 400 and what it's all about. And all of a sudden, it was the two of them. They were roommates. Yeah. Uh, Leo didn't trust Pepitone. And so he basically makes <laughs> Huntley be his roomie. And the stories between those two, you got the, the foul-mouthed New York you know, first baseman and you got Randy Huntley, who's never said a swear word in his life. Right. Right. And, and the two of them, uh, it it is literally one of the funniest things I've ever seen in my life.
0: Man. I wish I could have been there for that. Uh, I'll tell you, you know, Joe Pepitone passed away during the writing of this book and Randy for two or three days was inconsolable. He loved the guy so much. And to see he hadn't talked to him for a while and to see that kind of emotion from Randy, just, really shed a lot of light on their friendship and their relationship, and you're 100% right. You know, we put a few stories of Pepe in there, but there's some stuff you just can't put in print. It's just not a good idea. And you're right, so Randy's version in Randy's vocabulary of shoot and shucks is a little different than what Pepitone would have told the story. <laughs> but my favorite one that we do have in the book, and I gotta I just share this here real quick, is that apparently Pepitone had a motorcycle and he parked it on purpose outside of DeRocher's office at Wrigley. And so he would deliberately get on the motorcycle and start revving it up and just to piss off Leo. And eventually Leo figured that something to do with the handles because he's driving the motorcycle was screwing up Pepitone's wrist, which changed his batting. Probably not true, but it was a way for Leo to dig into that. And so the whole story goes is that Randy gets called up to Leo's office and he thinks he's being traded. And he comes out and he says, your roommate, he's got a motorcycle and it's ruining his batting because of all the that's going on and Randy's like what do you want me to do about it and he says well we're gonna have a meeting I want you to go find Pepitone and, and tell him to keep his mouth shut in the meeting and not say anything I don't know where's that go find it to, for this meeting so Randy tracks Pepitone down because he's smoking a joint in a bathroom stall somewhere and he follows the smell of the weed to, to, to connect with Pepitone he hauls it back to the meeting and leo starts in with his stuff and going back. now this is in, i think this is 1971 72 somewhere in there uh pepito's been around for a little while he's got his fake hair on and the sideburns and the whole thing and at the end of leo's rant he raises his hand pepito's raises his hand and he's like what are you doing and pepito says leo ralph hauck doesn't manage this way what is your problem <laughs> oh my gosh it just set the rosher off in, in every direction and then stuff about Ron Sanoday got pulled in and then the GM had to come down and people are at each other's throats. And he said at one point there was four guys restraining Ron who wanted to strangle DeRocher. was ready to quit. Randy Randy's sitting there and looks over at Pepitone is just enjoying the show. He
1: was, he was, he was and a bull, you know, just an amazing guy, Pepe, and just like I said, that's that's what Randy would call me, say Pepe, Hey, Pepe, Pepe. And, it was and you so- know, and
0: Paul, no slouch, two-time Gold Glove All Star. I mean, this guy had the goods. What? He was he was not just the loudmouth. He was a great guy, a great ball player. <laughs>
1: Now, after Randy gets traded, he goes to the Twins in '74, the Padres in '75, and just like I like I said, it's just baseball is such fortuitous, you know, just the way things work sometimes. He finishes his career with the Cubs, and in the book, you guys talk about this this really this last home run that he hits that yeah. you know, if you want to tell that story, that one really kind of got. We to talk me about really the good. double.
0: We got a yeah. second. It was a double actually. So he, double, first, sorry. Yeah, his first time up. I think it's the eighth inning. Kenny Rudolph had been catching at that point. Randy comes in. He's back from playing with San Diego. He just didn't feel like, you know, he was done with baseball. The Padres actually offered him a managerial spot. He turned it down. He still wanted to play. So he goes up back with the Cubs. He's in his first game back. I think Dutch Renner, one of the best umps of all time. You ever go watch a Dutch Renner highlight video? He would just scream. Like that. It was great. So Dutch Renner's catching. They're playing the uh, Dutch Renner's the ump. I'm sorry. They're playing the Mets, actually. And Randy gets up and just drills a double off the wall in left-center field. He's standing on second base, and he said, I knew I was home again. It was a capacity crowd to play against the Mets. Everybody watches that. Uh, And and they just stood a standing ovation. He saw some of the Mets players giving him an ovation because everybody's kind of in the same boat. He said it was the most emotional moment for him in his entire career uh, to have those accolades come down on him and be back home and finish his career with the Cubs where he knew he always would be pretty emotional.
1: Absolutely. And, and you mentioned the Padres offering him a managerial career and, and he was hoping to go that pathway with the Cubs and it, unfortunately it didn't work out. Right. And again, it's, it's weird how life works out because, you know, there he is, you know, baseball's over, what's he going to do next? And just out of happenstance, the, the idea of a fantasy camp comes out. Tell us a little bit about that.
0: Well, there's a gap here, right? So he, 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 they bring him up once he's quote retired from playing, they bring him back as a bullpen coach slash emergency catcher. And, you know, that lasts for a little while. That's, you know, his introduction to becoming a, a manager at some point. So they sent him down to the A. He does really well there and it bounced around back and forth. And at one point, they're going to do a revamp of the uh, the Cubs minor league teams. And he was told he'd have a bunch of uh, new players coming that he could work with. He was very excited about this. Now you got to remember, too back when he played, these guys would have off-season jobs. This is not like now where there's a guaranteed contract of X amount of dollars. Even if you get fired, you're paid for the rest of your life. None of that existed at this point. So prior to the managerial thing, he was working, selling cars or working in insurance or at a company at the bank or you know, uh, trading stocks and stuff like that. So it was a very different time. So managerial uh, position would be stability for him and his family. And you look at the catchers that have been great managers, Rossi and and you know some of these other guys have all been catchers because of the of the way they see the game, and that didn't turn out. They fired him, and he was bent. Let me just tell you that. Uh, and you know, so that was option was off the table. Had to figure something out. Went home, sulked for a few days, and a friend of his, Rich Melvin, who's the guy that started all the Let Us Entertain You, Entertain You restaurants in Chicago, uh, said, "Hey, about doing kids' camps." So they went to Harper College, which is not far outside of Chicago. Approached the AD there. The ADs knew who he was. We'd love to have you here. In record time, these camps filled with kids four, five, six, seven days a week. And Randy said it wore his hillbilly fanny out because <laughs> these little kids are running around learning the game and stuff. So after one season of that, uh, somebody asked him. It was probably Bellman again. or He had a partner at the time who you know was with him for a little bit. Said, what about getting some of your former teammates to come teach the kids? And he said, that's when the epiphany came. He had this thought that if he could recreate the major league experience spring training especially but major league experience for for fans guys like you and me that had never been done before it did not exist there was a couple of corporate things here you could have bob gibson come out sign your ball or something but certainly not suiting up certainly not playing with the with the the pros against the joes that had never happened so in 1982 late 81 into 82 he started reaching out to friends and guys that he had played with and said this is what i want to do and he had his first camp in January of 1982. And within six months, the next one filled up. We talk about in the book, how important that was because Leo DeRocher agreed to be the coach of his former teammates in that <laughs> second fantasy camp, Pepitone included. And Santo was there. And there was a great reconciliation to a greater or lesser degree because of what had happened in the clubhouse years earlier between him and Santo. And at one point in the after, uh, kind of after the, the ball game, they had these big dinners. And Leo got up and was just emotional and talked about, you know, how wrong he was in busting on Sano and a lot of these guys, something you would never thought Leo DeRoche would do. The whole room was, you could hear a pin drop. And so it went on from there. And for 38 years until COVID hit, the Randy Hundley Fantasy Camps were out two or three times a year. I played the 1993 camp. Uh, it was a fascinating and fantastic experience for me. First paid writing gig I ever had chicago sports profile magazine cover the randy hundley fantasy camp and you're gonna pay me 250 dollars where do i up and sign up for this and it was fantastic and and then we became friends and and that's how all the rest of this unveiled but there's a whole chapter in the book about the campers they supplied me these stories i had w- way more than i could use but a special shout out to beth chaplin in minnesota who's been to 30 camps 35 camps the first time She ever went was with her dad's was the first father-daughter camp experience. And the transformational experience this was showed up when we did our book launch last August, this past August uh, at La Villa on the Northwest side of Chicago, best Italian in the city, little plug for La Villa. And we had, you know, over 250 people show up and a huge contingent of the fantasy campers came some wearing jerseys and all that kind of stuff to see their coach. And real quick, Fergie Jenkins points out in the opening of the book in the forward that while Randy never managed at the level he would have liked to in the bigs for 38 years, he managed thousands and thousands of uh, very talented people who want to play in the fantasy camps. That's that's uh, really something to be to be celebrated.
1: And and again, now you see other teams doing oh, yeah. the same thing. It's and and it, it was it was Randy who was the first to do it. And you know, when you when you listen to the campers talk and you read their stories, yeah, to them it, it was it was something sacred, it was something very important. And you know, you talk about you know the pros versus the Joes, but you also had celebrities there, Phil oh, Dadahu, yeah. John Cusack, Chris yeah. Chelios. And for a lot of Cub fans, you know, they don't realize that Eddie Vetter, you know, Pearl Jam, who is my understanding, going to play Wrigley this August, Yes, um, that that Eddie wrote the song Someday We'll Go All The Way at the request of Ernie Banks at Randy Huntley's Fantasy (laughs) Camp. Can you just
0: imagine that? that? It's a movie, man. I mean, come on. I mean, to see Eddie Vedder sitting there with Ernie Banks strumming on the guitar, writing this song, and Ernie's like, you know, snap, yeah, it's pretty good. Eddie, keep going. It's just just the stuff dreams are made of, you know, and you're 100% right, you know. There's a great picture of Eddie in the book and and talked about that experience. You know, Bob Surratt, who's on WGN here in Chicago Radio, he went to the camp early on in 1983. So, you know, he's in the book. There's a great picture of him and Ernie because they were they were locker mates. Uh, Mark DiCarlo, who is in, in Los Angeles, the comedian, the TV personality. You know, he says it turns grown men into children, which is really important. Baseball at its core to me is about remembering the 10 year old boy or girl inside you that loved the game. Besides all the crap that you that gets surrounding on it, uh, and that's what it gets down to. And to a person, the people, when they reach out to me after they've read this book, that's what happens. They are emotional, for better or for worse, the 69 team, you know, it is what it is. For a long time, they were the most lovable losers in baseball, and there's not many of them left. You know, those guys are, are kind of few and far between. And so we achieved our goal, which was really on three things, to tell Randy's story, to, to, to show how this this skinny little kid from Virginia ends up being an Iron Man catcher in the big leagues, a premier catcher for years, uh gold glove all-star the leader of the Chicago Cubs and then he went on to this great other career as the fantasy camp guy that was number one number two was to show the backdrop of where these guys played I mean again not to beat it to the ground but there's a story in there about the Cubs getting ready to play a uh, exhibition game before the opening season in 1968 and they're in Indiana somewhere and all of a sudden, Randy says he sees Fergie Jenkins running like a man with his hair on fire through the lobby of the motel and getting ready to you know, lock himself into his motel room. And Randy's like, what, what's going on? And they just find out that MLK had been shot. And Fergie says, they're coming for us next. Can you imagine having to go pitch? I mean, come on, him, Billy Williams, all the players of color back then, they were put upon in ways you and I can't possibly, nor could the players of today possibly understand. So that was Another piece, this was this historical part. And then the third part, I think, is the appreciation of the game before sliding mints, you know, before pitch clocks, before the whole outfield was adorned with with signage, how baseball in so many ways is now an experience to be had, not just go to the game. You know, when I was a kid back in the day, I'm probably got a few years on you, young fella there. Uh, <laughs> I used to go like you hear these stories. You know, my mom would give me 10 bucks for a double header. We go on Saturday morning and take the bus down, work, walk up Clark Street and, and sit up and wait for the, the bleachers to open. And you can sit there all day for a double header, get sunburned, yell your head off. I learned more words in left field. My parents never taught me for the bleacher bums. And all of that stuff was like, those are the three pieces of the book. The pictures really, I think, pull all of it together. And I got to tell you, it's uh, we are pleasantly surprised, quite frankly, with the success of the book, the people buying it you know, they keep we keep restocking. We just came through the Christmas season and sent out countless autographed personalized copies to cup fans all across the country. So you know, it is it has become a thing and of all the projects that I've worked on in my career, which is well over 30 years now in radio and broadcasting and TV and all this work I've done, you know, for literary uh, and things. This is the best thing I've ever been a part of. We're friends. But it's more than that. And to see this for him the accolades he's getting to see him all dressed up at the, the book signings we've done and signing books endlessly and shaking his hand out because he's getting tired of signing books, man, it doesn't get any better than that.
1: I got to tell you, you talked about emotion, and I did get emotional when I read the last chapter of the book. Um, it's called Extra Innings. Yeah. And I don't know if it was always his intention to write that chapter or your guys' intention to, to put that in there, but, you know, it, it's – to me, it's hard because I, when I was a young kid and I'd go to CubsCon, I mean, you know, when you looked at Huntley or when you looked at, at, at Ron Santo or Ernie Banks or everything, you know, these guys were big, strong guys, you know? Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, these guys used to just rib on each other. They, You know, all these sessions at Cubs Convention and, yeah. and, and you know, they would all be I remember, God, you know, Becker ripping on Santo or you would oh, yeah. have um, you would have a, I always remember a funny one was always Jose Cardinal and Randy would would sit there and rip on each other. And it was just so you could just sense the love and admiration and, you know, time passing, you know, five, what is it? Father times undefeated. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, it, it, it's really when when I read about him talking about his wife, about his former teammates. Yes. Um, it really, you know, is, is a reflection of his life. And, you know, it, it really kind of hits you hard. And then that that whole, you know, winning the World Series um, when the Cubs won it and Tom Ricketts and Crane, Cranny gave him a, a ring, a World Series ring. I mean, truly yeah. a, a great ending. And, and it just really brings the whole book full circle.
0: Yeah, it was tough to write that. You know, um, he and I talked about, what to include and whatnot. There were stories that we'd like to put in. We thought we revisit them, said we'll leave that out. It finds its own narrative along the way. These book projects find their own life, basically. And we got to that last chapter. You know, we talked about that. How do you close this out? You know, as you mentioned, his wife, Betty, passed away uh, 20 years ago. It's been very, very difficult for him. It's not something you can prepare or plan for. And it took half of him away. He says that. I'm only half the guy I used to be because she's gone. And and then these, the partners and the people he's worked with, you know, some of them are gone. Then you get to the teammates and how much of that, as you said about Cardinal and these guys, you know, they all bucked on each other. And you go down the roster, and I think there's only 17, 18, 19 guys left from the 60, 19, including Pepitone, who came in 70, but we kind of lumped him in there. And it makes you look at these guys and the whole thing a lot different, at least it did for me. And I've known some of these guys over the years. And when we started talking about it, he you know, first thing he talked about was Ron Sando. He's literally getting ready to go play golf and see Ronnie, and he got a call from Ron Jr. Totally unexpected. He knew he was ill, but not that much, right? And then it goes to Ernie Banks. you start talking about that. And then you start going down a list of these guys who are no longer here. And these names are the names we grew up with, like you said. So not only is it his loss, Paul, it's our loss because that part of our childhood, whatever, that's gone. It becomes something in a history book. You know, Glenn Beckert, like you said, I still have his autograph, you know, my autograph book i look at it now and again this strong autograph of this guy it's like he cannot be gone it's not allowed but it is and so really kind of winding it all up you know randy's 81 now he's pushing towards 82 next june he's had health problems it's been up and down you know there's some challenges there uh but i will tell you the thing that i found most interesting in all of that even at his age is that you know his grip is as good as it's ever been sometimes i give him a boost up and he'll grab my hand like damn boy (laughs) What have you been doing all night? He has this inner fire in him that has not gone out. While the the machine has its bumps and bruises and and challenges, the inner spirit of Randy Henley is is right there. And no more is that prevalent when we'll be talking about something. For example, there's a story about Kenny Holtzman's no-hitter. Randy didn't catch that game. He was injured. So he's at home watching the game with a ruptured torn or torn toe tendon or something like that so he can't catch the game. I think it was either J.C. Hyde or John Bacavela. And talking about that game that he's watching on television, not even catching, and it was against Atlanta. And Henry Aaron hits a ball that had the wind not been blowing in, there's no hitter, it's gone. It would, it would have been a one hitter and it would have been a run. And so we're recounting that going back and forth. And I said, yeah, so as, as I'm writing this, I would review with him and I said, well, the ball right center or uh, left center, he goes, no, stop. It was a dead center, dead left field. I'm sorry, it was dead left field. And he says, "I remember seeing it clearly on TV." I don't remember seeing it clearly on TV. I'm just going by what the stats talk about where he's at. But he knew exactly where that ball had been hit. He knew exactly where Billy Williams was standing. He knew exactly what pitch Kenny Rudolph threw. I'm sorry, restart that. He knew exactly what pitch Ken Holtzman threw. So when he does things like that, I'm like, "Well, he's he's still there." So it's been a, a high education on baseball itself, not just his story and all the other stuff that's in there about Morgana, the kissing bandit and Cleet Boyer and some of this stuff that he would recall, he would actually got embarrassed. We talking about, I saw this woman bouncing out of the stands and she just bounced it. I can't remember who the up was behind him. And they just said, they just started blushing. You know, he just, It was just a bit much for him. So it just, so much of this is, uh, will never leave me. I, I have this huge poster you can see behind me, but over on my wall of fame over there, I have a huge, uh, replication of the of the cover of the book, and for a guy like me, I talk about this in the afterward. For a kid like me, who at 10 years old was waiting on the on the corner for an autograph uh, in 1970 during a rainout game, and I was getting ready to leave, and here comes Randy's red Corvette, and he stops, and rolls the window down, and pulls me out of the rain and signs my mitt, and then 20 some odd years later, I'm writing a story about him, and then I played in the fantasy camps and I'm writing his book about i mean it's gold
1: and and you know the first you know when i first met randy you know as a younger man you know he's kind of an intimidating president you know like it's he's very forward yes bird grip very you know yeah. but god a, a heart of gold and i yeah. guess the thing to me that i still look at is the fire in the eyes you know what i mean yeah. like like i have a picture in my memorabilia collection an 8 by 10 uh, of Huntley and he's like looking into the camera and you can just see yes. it piercing. And it's just an unbelievable, it's one of my favorite autographs because I, I don't, I don't, I, it's like a picture to me that just encapsulates the complete essence of the man. And like I said, just, just uh, a wonderful, wonderful book. And I, I really recommend it for any Cub fan, any baseball fan. Um, you know, I already, I, I gave a copy to my father. He went through, he was done with it in about a day and a half. Yeah, right. uh, you know, he couldn't put it down. So I just really, it, it is called Iron Man, legendary. Ch- Chicago Cubs, Kencher Randley Huntley, and John St. Augustine. I really appreciate you jumping on here and talking about the process because it truly is a special book that I think all Cub fans would enjoy.
0: I will appreciate your time. And I, I Randy says his best wishes. You know, you'd like to be here today, but it didn't work out. But uh, we appreciate you flying the W for us and getting behind the book. It's great stuff. And and I got to tell you real quick my final story. Is, uh, I mentioned about being at the Hall of Fame game with Dunstan and Grace going in. At one point, we were up in the booth. Uh, they gave us a Ricketts booth, which was very nice. And then right next to it, Crane Kenny has his booth. So we're over there sitting. And Crane Kenny and I are going back and forth about different things about the game and stuff like that. And I happen to look down. And here's Billy Williams sitting here and Randy sitting here. And I'm sitting in between them eating ice cream out of a little cub helmet, you know. <laughs> I'm thinking, I'm 64 years old. But I'm really 10 years old. to sit. I never would have guessed that. And to hear how they talked about the game between these two great grizzled batter all-star hall of fame veterans was stuff, you know, too bad the book was already a prick because that would have added just to it. So I keep I keep that picture on my camera, on my phone, when I want to be reminded about how special this journey is. Billy Williams here and Randy's sitting here and Crank Kenny's behind me and I'm eating ice cream out of a little mini Chicago Cubs batting helmet. It was the best stuff, man.
1: Well, thank you so much, John. And and Cub fans get the book, Iron Man. You're really going to love it.
0: Best place to do that, by the way, is Lulu.com. The only place you can get it is Lulu.com. It's not on Amazon for a lot of different reasons. Lulu.com, put Iron Man in the search bar, and you're, there you go.
1: And, and we'll have all your information to link to it, and we'll be Great. good to go so people can get their copy of Iron Man. Thank you so much, John.
0: Thanks, Paul. Appreciate it.